Because it was getting worse, I finally found a doctor who had said, I'm going to have you tested for something really rare. It's been a while since you've had an MRI, since you got hit by that drunk driver. Let's maybe go in and see what's going on, but let's just check this off the list. There's this rare disease I you know, want you to be tested for. And sure enough, it's what I had. Sure enough, it was genetic. Welcome to Fortune and Faith, a show about members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and how their faith influenced and oftentimes sustained them as they persevere through obstacles, failures, and challenges on their quest for success. I'm Jason Tang. To be an entrepreneur, you have to have a lot of crazy in you. At least that's what Curtis Calder says, and he would know. Curtis is the founder and CEO of Anson Calder, a travel-based accessory company that crafts luxury leather goods for the essential things you carry. But the way Curtis and his wife Allison got to founding their company didn't start with a dream and a plan. Instead, the business started more out of a hobby and a necessity after a doctor convinced Curtis to take a medical leave of absence from his finance job after a diagnosis of a rare form of muscular dystrophy. But this story starts a little earlier than that. As a teenager, Curtis describes himself as lazy and unmotivated, but his two-year full-time mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to Santiago, Chile East helped turn his work ethic around. And even though he didn't do well in high school, Curtis managed to work his way into being admitted to Brigham Young University, where he originally thought he would become a doctor back in 2005. At BYU, I was loving what I was doing, doing pre-med. I was volunteering in the emergency room. I um, was really trying to do everything I could to figure out what kind of medicine I would want to practice. There are a lot of different reasons I wanted to do it. And on a faith-based side, I very randomly uh, a year and a half into pre-med felt very inspired to move into business. And honestly, that was a it, definitely a big turning point in my life, but it was very unexpected. I was on a clear path. I knew where I was going. My parents initially thought, oh, you're just getting cold feet, right? Here's Kurt who barely went to high school, now has straight A's at BYU. He's pre-med. Uh, what's going on? It's not like I wasn't, you know, passing classes or anything. And I just really, I had this, you know, uh, inspirational moment that, you know, I've, I've never forgotten that I think I need to consider business. And that was hard for me. It really was a test of faith in some ways because it didn't make sense. And I, I look back to that a lot because I felt the inspiration. I, I, I knew what I felt and it was a big leap of faith because I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what in business I would do. I didn't know why, but I just realized I really think I have some talents that would really fit to this. Um, and so that's how I ended up switching to business. And it wasn't until three semesters later that I started a semester in the finance core at uh, BYU in the, in the Marriott School. And I want to say in the first class of one of uh, one of those classes during that semester, the professor started speaking and it was a very clear, this is it. This is exactly why I had this big, you know, not career change, right? Because I was still in school, but whatever you might call that study change. And that definitely those 15 to 18 months, you know, those three semesters for 
me to follow that, you know, inspiration and then see where the path was actually going was a test, but it felt right. And I kept moving forward in faith. Let me go back to the the part where you didn't go to high school. I mean, you did, but you barely graduated, but something sparked on your mission that changed you. What changed? Because just because you're a missionary doesn't mean you change as a person. Somehow you changed. So what was it that that catalyzed that that change in yourself. I went on my mission and it was hard, right? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of commitment. I was I was lazy before my mission. I knew how to work. My parents really taught me how to work, but I, you know, would do it because I had to. And there was some of that in the mission. It was a responsibility. I needed to go. Um and that's, that's very much a big reason why I went. I believed that the church was true. I didn't feel that I knew. But again, at, at that age, it makes sense that you often believe and act, and that knowledge comes. And my, my testimony um, really grew that way. I needed to keep moving forward in, in faith, and my, the blessings that would come from those steps of faith really gave me a testimony that was stronger than I honestly ever believed it could be. I think really my entire mission was I needed to step forward with faith before seeing the blessings or the answers. Which is always easier to say than it is to do. But when when we do look back, I think those experiences of moving forward in faith really do stick with you. But you felt finance was the right path for you. You graduate from BYU but it's right during the height of the Great Recession in 2009 when jobs were, were likely pretty scarce. I interviewed for jobs I was not interested in, but I didn't have options. Meaning, I would try and look at it and say, look, there is something there. I've got to start and prove myself and build my career somewhere. But there were so few companies hiring, and that's just what you have to do. And if you go in and prove yourself, other opportunities will come up. And I was joking with uh, my brother-in-law who'd graduated that previous year, same type of thing in a very difficult environment. You've got to take what you can and you just put your head down, go to work. Um, And I was very fortunate that someone left JP Morgan and a job came available maybe a month, month and a half after you know, most jobs have been posting and you're going through interviews and it's because someone had left and it created a, a, an opportunity and I started networking and finding anyone I could and, and had a, a friend in my ward at BYU that had actually interned at that office. And, you know, I, I, I will stay. And again, I, I tried to say this before. It is very often that opportunities come up that you miss out on and you think I wasn't good enough, I didn't prepare enough, and yes, we need to do all of those things, but it seems that sometimes everything aligns, and my interview with J.P. Morgan for that role, I hands down, that has to have been the best interview with my level of knowledge at that time that I've ever done everything seemed to go well. I answered things right. I was so prepared. And I walked out of that interview thinking, I honestly don't know how that could have gone better. And there are other interviews that obviously did not go that way. And 
it, you know, it feels like it really was meant to be. And that's, that's how I got started with JP Morgan. And that's, that's really was the beginning of my career. So JP Morgan in New York city is, is the office that you're assigned to, right? So not initially. So initially I went to Denver, I went to Denver, Colorado, and I began underwriting credit. Uh, It was an incredible way to start my career. I did that for a year. And then an opportunity came up in Switzerland that someone had reached out and said, Kurt, you've lived internationally. You're really smart. You really should look at this. And um, I uh, moved to Switzerland without ever, ever having ever traveled to Europe. Uh, you To be an entrepreneur, I've always said, you've got to have, well, not always, since I've become an entrepreneur, I've realized you've got to have a little bit of crazy. And I've realized you need actually a lot of crazy to, to dive in head first. I texted my wife when someone had reached out to me about this opportunity. I said, Hey, would you move to Switzerland? More kind of saying it like a joke, like, Oh, that's fun to think about doing that. And she responded, she was working as a nurse at the ICU at the time in Denver. And she responded and said, Oh, absolutely. And I was like, Oh no, I'm serious. And she's like, yeah, so am I. I totally moved to Switzerland. And sure enough, we ended up taking that job. From there, I went to my last job at J.P. Morgan, working for the chief investment officer of the private bank of J.P. Morgan, and that was the most incredible job. It's very dynamic. We talked to the smartest people in the world. We had an incredible team. I covered Latin America and, and emerging markets and, and, and very much fixed income because of my uh, direct reports experience, and I, I loved that, and I you know planned on being there for a while. And it was the most incredible job. And I could, again, see where my path was headed and what, you know, the next five, 10, even 20 years might look like professionally and was very, very satisfied and happy with what that looked like. So paint the picture for, for individuals in the finance world. This is not a nine to five job typically. (laughs) No. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. In Denver, I was the newest analyst. I had, we had a 6 a.m. call for an 8 a.m. Eastern call every morning called the morning meeting. And I had to get there at 5.40 to turn the lights on, connect to the dial-in, print out you know, the, the deck for that meeting, um, all before everyone showed up at 6 a.m. And I rarely left the office before 7 a.m., or sorry, before 7 p.m. Uh, on average, I'd say I probably worked until 8 or 9 p.m. And absolutely nights that are 2, 3 a.m. And I'm getting home to try and crash for a couple hours before having to go back into the office. And Switzerland uh, was even more hours. It was a consistent 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. always. That was hard. And then New York, even more. I mean, right? New York is the center of the universe. Um, And yeah, they're insane hours, but you are learning so much so fast. You're surrounded by incredible talent. And it's, man, it's, it's an incredible experience that I'm so grateful that I had. It is a lot of work, but it's, it's incredible. It feels like it's, you're learning at, at double the rate because there's just, you're putting in, I mean, more than double the hours. You're working 100-hour weeks, maybe more yeah. on, on some cases. Yeah. I, mean, I, I feel for your wife. I'm, I'm sure she's kind of <laughs> on, on her own, right? But yeah. then not only is that relationship, it's, it's difficult, but then you start to have some 
your body breaking down. It, it sounds like yeah. some pain in, in your back is, is what I read. I was hit by a drunk driver when I was 18 years old. I've had um, back issues ever since, and I always assumed that was why. Um, but it kept getting worse. And I'm in my 20s and thinking, why do I have so much back pain? And it was lower back pain. Most people, or sorry, it was upper back pain. Most people deal with lower back pain. And I'd meet with doctors and they'd say, this doesn't make sense that you, your upper back hurts. And um, anyways, you know, fast forward and kind of roll through that. I, uh, because it was getting worse, I finally found a doctor who had said, I'm going to have you tested for something really rare. It's been a while since you've had an MRI, since you got hit by that drunk driver. Let's maybe go in and see what's going on, but let's just check this off the list. There's this rare disease I you know, want you to be tested for. And sure enough, it's what I had. Sure enough, it was genetic. Sure enough, my grandfather, who had been in a wheelchair for most of my life, um, and for the previous 10 years at that point, had been in an electric wheelchair and was kind of getting to the point where he was struggling to feed himself, had a form of muscular dystrophy. Um, my family didn't talk about it. They didn't think they had passed it on because none of their daughters seemed to have it. And so they just didn't talk about it. And my grandfather was an incredible person dealing with some very significant physical limitations. I never saw him stand up straight. I never saw him move at anything but an incredibly slow pace. Um, and yet he was one of the happiest, most incredible uh, people I've ever known. And I was very close with him. And all of a sudden everything starts clicking and it makes sense. And I was diagnosed and okay, it's a genetic disease. And my wife, you know, with her medical background starts digging into it. And, um, you know, that was tough and, and starting to have these, you know, initial discussions where the doctor, my doctor was telling me, look, you really, look, it's bad on anybody to work 100 hours a week, but you've, you've got muscles that have already fully deteriorated, others that are beginning to progressively, it will, you know, consume all of the muscles in your body, none of your organs. So, you know, you'll keep your mind, but you will get to a point where you have no muscle strength, you know, at all. Um, and you've really got to take care of yourself and, you know, working a hundred hours a week, you really can't take care of yourself mentally, physically, um, spiritually is difficult when you're working that much, but unless you make it a priority and you do it, then when you're working a hundred hours, you is unfortunately is often seen, you will fade and deteriorate. And I've, you know, honestly, because of my mission, my parents were incredible in raising me and, and my mission really helped me realize uh, how important my faith was to me. And fortunately, that's how I've, you know, survived all of these things in life is, is making that a priority always. Um, and yeah, all of this kind of comes together and, and hits at the same time. And, and it was tough. I loved what I was doing. I loved my job. And I went on a short-term medical leave of absence because it had gotten so bad that I was, my, the disease was progressing a lot faster than it should. And that's exacerbated by stress and the amount of hours I'm working. And, um, I, you know, took this initial leave and I thought, okay, take a week or two off, get back into work and get going again. Very naive. 
and I, you know, it ends up stretching, you know, a third week and I, then it's like, I have to get back to work. I, I've got to get back into my position. I don't want to miss out on this opportunity. I've been, you know, killing myself for years uh, to get to this point. I don't want to lose it just because I'm needing to rest and take care of my body and go to physical therapy. Um, so I went back to work. I felt like I'd made some progress physically. And then over the next three months, it just took a nosedive, even worse, even faster. And my physician finally convinced me, look, you may end up in a wheelchair in your 50s. At this point, you might end up in a wheelchair in five years. Like you have got to prioritize what matters. And it's not that I was so money hungry. I'm a hard worker. I, you know, I'm trying to battle, I think, you know, feeling like I was lazy when I was a kid and as a teenager and not having drive. It's like, no, no, I, I have drive. I am ambitious. And, and really it's the work ethic side. Um, that really, I think, was pushing me. And I finally realized, look, I, I know what really matters to me. And I've just got to stop for a second, take a step back and, and think about it. What am I doing? What am I wanting to do? What really matters to me? And then finally took a leave of absence and, and finally started to spend some time to, okay, I've got to figure out what's going on with my body. And I, you know, there's nothing that can be done to stop it, but hopefully... I can slow down the progression by taking better care of myself and, and finally started to, to give some prioritization uh, that I'd really needed to be doing. This is a life-changing kind of disease. What, what was the reaction by you and your wife, and I think you have kids at this time too now, when you get this type of, hey, this is what you have and this is what it's going to do, and, and, and now all of a sudden your your brain is flooded with, what's my future going to hold? So how, how do you, you know, take all of that in and internalize it all? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I, you know, a lot of people have said to me as well, like, Oh, you're, you have such a good attitude about this, or you have so much faith knowing you've got, you know, this very difficult diagnosis. Um, but for me, in a lot of ways, I, For me, I think the biggest thing initially was it was nice to at least know what was going on. I didn't understand why I was, you know, incredibly fit and incredibly active. And I exercised regularly, at least as best I could with how much I worked. And yet I had quite a bit of pain. Things were getting worse. And I, I couldn't kind of overcome the hump in some areas of getting getting past some of the pain and, and the difficulties um, physically. And I didn't know why I'd been one. And then now I start to realize, wait, I've been asking doctors about this for like 15 years. And, and then I start to realize even when I was a kid, like certain warmups for baseball were so hard for me to do. Um, I just figured I was weak. And, and so I think the initial reaction really was great. Now I know what's going on. So now I can go after it and fix it and improve it and do whatever it is that I need to do. Um, and that was very much my initial thought. It was, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't devastating news. It was, but I, I ne it never hit me like that because, well, I can't do anything about it. That's just what it is. So I, I, you know, there's no point in dwelling on it or thinking, oh, why is this happening to me? Um, I've got a lot of other weaknesses, you know, and, and struggles, but that that hasn't been one of them because, well, this is what Heavenly Father has in, 
in my plans and in my life. So this is a, a trial and struggle that I've got to deal with, but I can't change it. So why expend any effort worrying about that? Let's just, you know, move forward and, and do what I can. But is it that easy where you just say, Heavenly Father, this is the plan you have? Or do you question that when it's out of your control, that this, you know, why is this happening to you? Look, I am far from perfect. I don't know why, but that is not one of my struggles. I don't know why. I I have never questioned why do I have this disease? Why do I have to deal with this when other people don't? Um, it, I don't know why. I don't know if that's just, you know, uh, the kind of faith I'm blessed with. I don't, I don't know what it is, but that that just makes sense to me that that's my trial. That's one of my trials. That's one of the struggles. And so I just, you know, how can I learn from it? How can I become a better disciple through this? Um, as I mentioned, I, I learned to love to read on my mission and Elder Maxwell has long been one of my favorite authors. Um, and his perspective on when he was diagnosed with cancer and the way he looked at that in in recognizing okay there is a lot that I now need to learn from this and and so again I don't know where that really started but yeah for whatever reason that that hasn't been the difficult aspect of it it doesn't mean it's been easy it's it's difficult it it is hard um things are definitely getting worse physically um, you know, I try to not think about it. I try and just put it in a box because why worry about it? I can't do anything about it. But I mean, there are things that I do about it, but you know, I'm trying to take care of myself. But yeah, for, for me that, I think that's just a little bit the way I'm wired. This is what you're dealt. So do the best you can with it and move forward. So you're, you're wired to work a lot, hundred hour yeah, weeks. Yeah. Your doctor convinces you, hey, you've got to take medical leave and you've got to take care of yourself. So now you're staying mm-hmm. home and probably working close to zero. I mean, that's, that's got to be a hard transition for your mind. Yes. I was going crazy. I, we, it's funny to look at it now. My wife and I didn't really watch TV or shows or movies. Like, absolutely. We enjoy entertainment and stuff like that. But living in Switzerland, we, I, so much going on. I'm working so many hours. She's got a a job out there. And now what can I do? I can't be actively doing anything. I'm supposed to be resting. I'm going to physical therapy. I'm now using muscles that I haven't been using correctly or that are very much deteriorated. And it's incredibly painful. Every, you know, my pain levels are going up. It's getting a lot worse. And man, I was going stir crazy. And it was driving me crazy, but you know, that's what I've got to do. I was not sleeping. Um, now that I, now that you bring that up, I think that's probably a big reason why I wasn't sleeping because I'm now not doing anything to, you know, stimulate myself um, mentally and to challenge myself intellectually. Um, and it was rough. After a few months, my physician said, look, I want to acclimate. We need to get you acclimated to going back full time. So he just said, look, find something to do, whether it's a hobby, anything, you need to start using your arms, right? I don't want you doing manual labor, but find something, um, you know, sitting at a desk, but not nonstop, right? 
different things like that. And sure enough, I, I start designing. I didn't think I'd done anything creative since elementary school. And I start, you know, I, I, I didn't realize I had this affinity for bags and, you know, eventually realized, you know, that the first product was a wallet. Um, but I'm such an efficiency nut. I'm living in a tiny apartment. I'm living out of my bag when I go to work, living out of bag when we travel, especially in Europe, you've got to really pack down these tiny bags and do weekend trips. And, and I think that's kind of what started to trigger it. And I thought, oh, I've always wanted a better version of this. Zero, zero thought on making this a business. I mean, literally doesn't cross my mind whatsoever. It was, I just started designing it on an iPad. And I started sketching things out and looking at it, doing different things. And, and then that snowballs and it's like, oh, I'm in the heart of New York City. There's an entire garment district. And I start, my wife's got a sewing machine and I, you know, teach myself how to sew and start doing projects with my wife. And she loves creative things. And now this is something we can do together. Hey, this might be a fun hobby we do together. Still not a business at all. I'm buying materials. I start breaking her sewing machine because I'm trying to sew leather with it. It's not made for that. I'm telling her, let's buy an industrial sewing machine. She's like, are you crazy? We have this, you know, 900 square foot apartment. We now have three kids and we're not going to buy some industrial sewing machine. Um, And again, it just snowballed from there. And finally, um, we have a friend over for uh, dinner and she says, Kurt, this is amazing you've got to do something with this. She is a designer at Tommy Hilfiger and said, we could sell the crap out of that. You've got to at least try. And it was like, well, yeah, we've kind of thought about it because people like say, oh, that's amazing. I would totally buy that. I would totally use that. But it's really never gone more than, well, sure, your family, whatever. Like, no, this, this is not what we do. This is not how we think. Like, yeah, it's great, but no, I'm not going to go down that path. And enough of those comments. And it was like, oh, you know what? Maybe we try it. Maybe we try something on the side. And, you know, I'll still go back to JP Morgan. I loved what I did there. But yeah, this might be, you know, something we're both smart. We could figure out a way to do this. And it can be a nights and weekends thing. And, you know, I still wasn't, I literally timed myself every day, resting, how much time I'd, you know, attend work, if you will, doing this, you know, creative, whatever, to try and acclimate. And I still wasn't approved to go back to work full time, but you know, by now it's getting up to 20, 30 hours a week and JP Morgan has want me back until, you know, I'm up to full time. And, and so all of a sudden I'm actually building this business. Um, and so by the time I was approved to go back to work full time and I started interviewing different roles at JP Morgan, it was a combination of two things. One, I started to realize I actually, am very visionary. I hadn't really realized that. I don't know what, you know, uncorked that, but I could really see a vision for what this could become. And I was convinced that I just had to put my head down and go to work and I would be able to do it. Um, and at the same time, I'm interviewing for jobs that should be more manageable. I can't be working over hundred hours a week. I need to take care of my body physically. And starting to combine those two things, there was nothing I was interviewing for at JP Morgan that I had any desire or interest in doing. But I needed to go back to work. And yet I'm loving this you know, business I'm starting to build with my wife. And that is when I realized this entrepreneurial bug I thought I had 
was actually a raging monster inside of me that would take over my life. And, and now here we are, man, almost a decade later and very different uh, next 10 years than, than I expected at the time. Now, talk about how you, you and your wife make that decision because you're probably making pretty good money in, in the finance world. Yeah. And now you're going to seemingly transition into starting your own business, which probably isn't bringing you nearly <laughs> you know, the same amount. And you're living in New York and it's not cheap. And so is it one of those examples where you talked about before where it's step forward with faith and then, and then hope that things happen? Um, I, I believe, you know, I am absolutely a person of faith and I, I live by faith, but in asking that I, it has taken me time to act more in faith from a professional and financial standpoint, meaning I have always sought inspiration and guidance when making very big decisions like career moves, career changes. Absolutely. But this, I don't feel like was so much a matter of prayer and is this the right thing to do? I mean, now that I'm saying that, okay, yes. Like when we decide to do things, we'd absolutely pray about it. But it wasn't, I don't know. I I think I've struggled when I think something can be very fortuitous financially and a good opportunity. Heavenly Father doesn't care if we're wealthy. That's not a priority. And so, you know, I, to, give, to give a horrible example, I have never prayed to know if I should buy a certain stock or make a certain investment um, because that's not of eternal consequence or value. And I think starting this business, we definitely prayed about what this meant for us and our family and whether this was the right move to consider but, um, and so it's funny, I answered you, I'm like, oh no, it really wasn't this. Okay, no, from that side it was, but when you asked me like, well, how did you decide to start a business or why and what, what led to that? Well, maybe it's now the experience I've been through, but why do you start a business? Well, you better do it because you're wanting to be very financially successful doing it. Not because that's the most important thing, but because if you don't find that, in what you're doing, you never should have taken that calculated risk. Not because you're doing it for money, but you've got, and again, I'm so financially minded in everything I do, you have got to do the math and there's no reason you ever do that unless it is altruistic. It has to be very worth it financially to make up for all of your costs, other costs, opportunities. And so I think that's why when you asked that initially, I was like, oh no, I don't, I don't not that focused on what, you know, makes sense financially, but that, uh, you know, and that may uh, say a little bit more into just how my mind works, but definitely from the, why are we doing this or what are we going to do? You know, that's, it's a big move and we always, you know, make those big decisions a matter of faith. Um, So I think for us at the time, it really was, it was little by little. And again, I, I think heavenly father, I know I, I don't think Heavenly Father has a way of helping us learn in the ways that are best for us to learn. And sometimes it's a very clear answer. Um, It is, in my experience, more often than not, a progressive 
steps of faith, um, acting in faith, being inspired, and then needing to act on that inspiration without, you know, always seeing the path forward. So you launch in, in, in January, 2015, what's the business? And then what, what are your, what are the first things you're selling? Oh man, good question. So we didn't start selling product until October 31st, um, of 2015, but I officially created the business January, 2015. I had been interviewing, um, the previous few months with, with JP Morgan wasn't quite, you know, um, cause right at the time, it's just something I'm doing with the time that's supposed to be acclimating, going back to work. So it's not even a real business yet, but at that point, I mean, I'd spent all this time on this, whatever hobby, if you will, cause that's what I was supposed to do. Um, and now it's like, okay, we're going to go after this. So I, okay, this now is going to become a business. So we registered as a business. I start laying out a business plan, thinking financially, going to manufacturers. All right, of all these products I've designed, what do we want to start with? And I'm very collaborative in nature. And so I start looking at, you know, things that we can collaborate on. Um, and so I, I designed and started preparing to produce an entire line of products but we thought, all right, let's start with the wallet. It's the, the differentiation with the functionality of our wallet with the push slot, which is now patented. And, you know, we're going through that process at the time is so cut and dry heads above everything else out there. It is so clean and minimal. The level of functionality you can get with such a minimal product is there's nothing out there that can really compete with it. So we'll start with that. Then we'll get into the bigger or more complex. Look, this is how you can have a bag. And it's so much better for all of these reasons. So we started with the wallets. Um, and we started, I think it was like the last day of October. So we started selling to friends and family, sent out like emails like, hey, we started this business. You know, this is our, our product. So we really started selling those two wallets, our, our first production run was 250 wallets total, I believe, between two different styles. And they're really the same style. There's just a cash slot that's a little bit, you know, um, gives you some optionality there. Um, and then we uh, were also selling the catch-all, which was, you know, a second really basic product. And um, yeah, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, where we got through the holidays and it was like, all right, this, this is great. And then looking back, it's like, wow, we just emailing friends and family, we did like $2,000 in revenue in that first month. Like Allison built the website. We didn't, we're nowhere near even thinking about advertising. It's just like people we know, like, Hey, by the way, we're also selling in $2,000 is not much at all, but you know, we're both from Utah. Most of our friends and family are tied to Utah or, you know, very frugal. And we're selling a $125 wallet when most people don't spend more than $20 on a wallet. And now looking back, it's like, that's pretty incredible that given our network, if you will, that would never consider paying a price like that, that we actually, you know, moved you know, a handful of products and, and started to get things moving. And, and then it just kind of kept going from there. And then we started going into other things to get it going. And now I hear, you know, you've got your stores, your storefront in, in, in Salt Lake, and I think maybe one in California. 
So we've we've done different retail stores. They've all been short term. Again, the financial in me, um, and it's not very clear when you look at all this stuff online. Uh, the financial person in me was, has never been willing to sign these big leases. There, there's so much that needs to go behind the marketing side to get a physical store to work. A physical store usually takes three to five years to become uh, net profitable as a whole. Um, and I just have never had the funds to do that in Manhattan. You know, you'd have to have millions of dollars and years and patience just to see any of that. So we ended up opening that next year, a short-term retail store. And I came up with this concept and design, you know, really worked well for us. But again, it was all short-term. So we ended up having two stores in New York. We had a store out in Las Vegas for a little while. Uh, And then when we moved the business, things really started growing. And I thought, all right, we can't finance this through New York. It's way too expensive. You know, we're much more, you know, um, bootstrapping the business. We moved the business to Utah to be the back end of it. And we were, you know, feeling like we were going to need to be somewhere else to keep running, you know, the front end, if you will, the business and travel. Um, And then only opened a store in Salt Lake because we needed space we needed to, you know, have a real office for people to come to and, and okay, let's, you know, kill two birds with one stone. And I, you know, said, look, we're running the business out of here, which you normally cannot do. And I said, look, this is the way it's going to work. It's only a couple people that will also be doing these jobs while manning the store and kind of back and forth. So it's not like it's going to be an office. It'll be a store. And that actually proved very, very fruitful. One of my uh, early on mentors said, as busy as you are, Kurt, you need to also spend time on the floor. You've got to be interacting with customers, especially because you design all the product. And, and again, some very fortuitous things. Uh, we were then, and we did quite well in Salt Lake, a lot better than expected, especially given our price point. Um, and we were looking to, they wanted us to stay. We wanted to stay really hard to make it work financially because we're still such a small business. Um, and they just didn't have the right opportunity for us that worked for us and worked for them. And so we ended up, you know, moving out and we're looking at, you know, building kind of a flagship store, if you will, that we would definitely run the business out of and kind of have a storefront. And, you know, the process of going through that and looking at different opportunities, then COVID hits. And it's like, oh, I'm really glad we don't have a physical store open right now. And we um, have not had a physical retail store since. Um, It's definitely been on our minds. You know, it it definitely helps, especially at our price point. You can get in the right location. But yeah, living through COVID has been a whole new world. And so from that standpoint, um, yeah, still no retail stores. But, you know, there, there are things that we're thinking about. And it's just a matter of. We've only got so many resources and so much time, both human capital resources as well as financial resources. And, and you know, now going into, you know, what, what is sure to be a recession and, and figuring out how difficult that's going to be coming up. It's, it's, we are eager opportunistically to find the right opportunity to get a store open again uh, where it makes sense. But I am a lot more conservative having lived through the pandemic with a, very travel and commuter focused business that was hit very hard. Um, I have gained a lot of experience from that. We're a lot more conservative in how we're looking at, at steps forward. What is success to you and how do you measure that? 
Oh, man, I, I will tell you, the last couple of years living through the pandemic have been an incredibly difficult time for our business. Our, um, we've had to lay off people. We've had to get super lean. That is a really difficult thing to do when people are betting on you as the entrepreneur. You're the one who brought them in. We were growing so much before the pandemic hit. Um, and so I have thought a lot about why am I doing what I'm doing? I am a very ambitious person, but I'm not doing it for the money. There's no way I'm doing it if there's not an expectation, right, of the money coming, but it's not greed that's driving me. It's not wanting to, you know, yes, I want to provide for my family. Um, there are a lot of other things I can do to provide for my family with a lot less risk and a lot more security than this. But, you know, for what really matters to me, COVID, the one silver lining is it has helped bring me back down to earth. I mean, I was traveling a ton. We were negotiating with a very sizable um, counterpart internationally and, and looking at some really fun and exciting things um, before COVID hit. And now all of a sudden I've got to be running the business out of my home as do all of our employees. And we've got to navigate this and, and some very difficult times and difficult decisions. And it just reminded me, look, I don't need the wealth. It's not why I'm doing it. That's not why I love it. Um, I, I, there's a lot about my job. I have not loved for a very long time. And that's just unfortunately part of it. Um, but that's kind of a long way of going about what I, it helped me remember, look, I need to provide for my family. I have this muscle disease that limits my physical abilities and will continue to get worse. And I unfortunately know people with my disease that are not in a financial position to provide for themselves. And yet they have to stop working. And, and, you know, there's some struggles there. So I have even more incentive. I've got to make sure that I can take care of my family. Look, you don't need millions of dollars to provide for your family. And that's where it's been a good reminder of, okay, well, what do I need? And the amount of sacrifice and work and effort and risk, if I don't need all of this money, I really just need to provide for my family. And what's most important to me is being able to be with my family, for my kids to know me, for me to raise them, for me to, you know, have time with my wife and and serve in the church and serve others and and build us others up and and use the talents that I've been given. Um, and so as I've really gone through this in the last couple of years through some very difficult decision making and okay, how are we going to get through this? And now how are we going to move past this? And now how are we going to grow from this? So to bring all of that together, what does success look like for me? It's I want to be able to do something of value and add value to other people's lives, even if it may be through, you know, um, different products, right? In, in a way, I want to take care of my family and provide a roof over their head. And then I know this sounds super basic and you don't go to become an entrepreneur just to do these very basic things. But look, if I can meet those needs and have be able to prioritize what really matters to me, 
that is success. That's Curtis Calder, founder and CEO of Anson Calder. You can find all their products online at www.ansoncalder.com. The leather for all their products is made from full-grain calfskin from a French tannery that has origins dating back to the 16th century. And speaking of origins, Anson Calder came to be because Curtis was trying to solve one of his own problems. He couldn't find a wallet he loved, so the first wallet he ever created was made out of packing paper and tape. I do still have the paper wallet. Uh, now that you ask about that, I need to go pull it out again. It's, it's been a while. It's fun to kind of go back through that journey again, kind of like we have today talking through, you know, the, the process and the, the life of our, our brand and business. Thanks for listening to Fortune and Faith. You can connect with me on Instagram using the handle at Fortune and Faith Podcast. Please subscribe, leave a review, and we'll see you next time. New episodes come out every second and fourth Monday of the month.